Welcome to the Holy Cross Sermon Podcast. This whole year we're exploring the life and teachings of Jesus in the book of Luke. We're in a series called Kingdom Life. We are looking at how Jesus taught believers to live. Join us now as we dive into another passage. Let's take a moment and pray. Lord, thank you today as we engage in what it means to live this Christian life. We invite you to come and speak. We thank you that you're not a faraway God, but a God who comes near when we call upon you in the name of Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, come. Come and speak. Come and fill our hearts and our minds. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill my words and open the Scriptures. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I recently shared a story with our His School teachers that I thought would be worth repeating today. I I suspect maybe even a few of you have heard it. The story goes like this. A man was out hiking one day, and that always catches my attention because I'm a man who likes to be out hiking. This guy was late in the day. He was uh, hiking along a ridgeline, and as he hiked along the trail, it gave out, and he began to slide down the side of the mountain. And as he was sliding and scrambling and trying to stop himself, he saw below him that the, that the mountain went to a sheer cliff and that he was about to go over. And just as he went over that edge, he reached up and he managed to get a hold of a shrub that was sticking out of the side of the cliff. And he just held it there as he caught his breath and, and he was panicking, as you can imagine. He, he started to cry out, Is there anybody up there? Help! Help! Help me! And he heard a voice. I'm here. He said, oh, who's up there? Help! I'm down here! Help! I'm here, came the voice. And the man said, I can't see you. Who are you? I'm God. Oh, well, thank God. I mean, thank you. I'm glad you're there. Can you help me? Yes, my son, I can help you. Well, how? My son, trust me and let go of the shrub. The man said, wait, did I hear you right? Yes, my son, trust me and let go of the shrub. The man looked down at the rocks below. He looked at the shrub he was holding on to. He looked back up and he said, Is there anybody else up there? I think we all can laugh at that knowingly because, of course, we understand it, don't we? We understand the challenge of trusting God and letting go of the shrub, the difficulty of releasing what we can see for what we can't see, and the experience of struggle that goes on within us when God says, I have a better and more thorough way of saving you than you can do for yourself. See, to be a Christian is to let go of whatever you are holding on to in hopes that it will bring you life or success or meaning or significance apart from God. Anything outside of Jesus Christ. Now, in the gospel lesson that we heard today in Luke 18, we encounter a man who ultimately was not able to trust God and let go of the shrub. 
And as a result, he walked away from Jesus very sad. He's known as the rich young ruler, and he was rich in two ways. He was wealthy morally, and he was also wealthy financially. Now let's think about this guy for a moment, because he's the kind of guy we would all probably look at and go, now there's a stand-up fella. There's a decent guy. He's a good guy. Good citizen. He's honorable. He's got integrity. Right? Pays his taxes. He does what's right. He's got it together. He's disciplined and orderly. Natural leader. An influencer. He's the kind of guy that when he speaks, people pay attention to what he has to say. Probably serves his community. He volunteers. Gives a little here to various causes. Maybe even coaches his kid's soccer team. And when Donuts with Dad Day comes around, he usually shows up. He's like a lot of church men and church women, for that matter. And he's wealthy, so he's like a lot of us. You might not think of yourself that way, but of course, compared to the rest of the world, we are a very wealthy country. And we all are within that. But, but I mean, it's not a bad wealth. He's worked hard. He's, he's really worked hard, and it's paid off for him along the way. Right? He's got plenty of disposable income, a nice house. He's got nice toys. He can take vacations. He might even be living his best life now. Prosperity has followed him. Now, in Jesus' day, and it's still like this today, the thought was, if you do good, good will happen. The way we say it in the South is, blessing is going to follow some variation on that, you'll be blessed. Tim Keller says that this is a causal way of living life. If I do this, then something else will follow. If I do good, then good will necessarily happen. And the idea both back then in Jesus' day and also now is that God rewards those who do the right things, who play by the rules and who work hard. If you live well, blessing will follow. Again, Keller says, we're kind of like Maria. You know, Julie Andrews' character in The Sound of Music? She's about to marry the rich guy, and she's singing, of course. The song is called Something Good. The lyrics go like this. For here you are, standing there, loving me, whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. If you do good, then eventually good's going to happen. It's kind of like karma, right? Now, the opposite way of thinking was also true back then, as it is also now, that if you do bad, then perhaps bad things are going to come your way. Think about the book of Job. I mean, if you boil it all down, as Job talks to his friends, he basically says, you know, you probably did something wrong, and God's getting you for it. That's sort of the gist of all their arguments to Job about why he's suffering so much. And this is still typical today. People are confounded when bad things happen to good people. You've probably thought that thought yourself. Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a book with that title back in the 80s. Terrible theology, by the way. He comes to a really bad conclusion about God. But but the title we probably know. Because you might have even said it. You've certainly heard it. Why do bad things happen to good people? So some tragedy occurs and we wonder, gosh, why in the world did that happen to them? They shouldn't get cancer. 
I shouldn't get cancer. They shouldn't have problems. Why did that accident happen to them or me or the tragedy? A few years ago when I was really sick with an autoimmune disorder, I had some really nice and well-meaning people absolutely confounded. And on almost any given Sunday in that long season for me, someone would say, you're such a nice guy and, and you're a pastor. How can this be happening to you? As though somehow as a pastor and a nice guy, I get a pass on the difficulties of life. It just doesn't work that way. But of course, that's the way so often we think. There probably were a few who wondered what I'd done wrong too, by the way. But they never spoke up because this is the South after all, right? So here's this rich man and the text says in verse 18 that he comes to Jesus and he asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now we don't exactly know why he's come, what has preceded this approach to Jesus, but I would guess that he recognizes that something is still missing. Our hearts are empty until they're filled with God, Augustine told us. And so that nudge, that nag, that itch, that something is going on inside of him that has brought him before Christ. Mark's account of this incident in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, it says that the man ran up to Jesus and he knelt down before him. And that, of course, is a posture of humility. So, so this is a good guy. He's a decent person. There's something stirring within him. And I suspect he's recognizing something is still lacking or missing in his life. Basically, he asked Jesus, what is there left for me to do? What else? I can remember a number of years ago, a man who approached me who had, well, he'd basically made it. He'd gotten to the top of his career. I think he had patented something and he was pretty wealthy, retired early, could do anything he wanted. Like he worked when he wanted to. I think he was probably a consultant or something like that. And he came to me because he just didn't have any peace. Started coming to church and then we had coffee and, and that was the gist of the conversation. What's still missing? What do I have to do? I've got everything I want, but there's still this kind of ache inside of me. That's what I think's going on with this rich young ruler. What do I still have to do? What's missing? Jesus answers him in this way that, well, he didn't expect and he certainly didn't like. Verse 23, he says, it says, but when he heard these things, in other words, when the man heard what Jesus said, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Mark 10.22 says, disheartened by what Jesus said, he went away sorrowful. So what is going on? I think there are at least three things that we see happening here in this passage that Jesus would have us to see today. The first is that Jesus upends this man's views about himself. The second is that Jesus upends this man's views about religion. And the third is that Jesus upends this man's views about God and money. Himself, religion, and God, and money. So let's look at that first thing, how Jesus upends the man's views about himself. The question the man asks is, what must I do? What must I do? His focus is on himself. He had achieved good. He had always done, and as a result of doing, been rewarded. Right? He's looking for some tips and techniques, I think, to add on to the life he already has. He's looking for a few principles to live by that will help him to just improve this already good life that he is living. He's built something, and 
He's looking to Jesus to add on to what he already has. But we, we need to understand that is not the gospel. That is actually the antithesis of the gospel, adding on to what we already have. The message Jesus brought was not that I've come to improve your life. I've come to kill your life and give you a new one. That's the gospel. I'm not looking to put a little bit more or make it a little shinier. I have come to make an exchange, my life or your life, and those who receive that exchange receive true life. You have to die to yourself in order to receive. You have to die to yourself as the source of your own life in order to receive God's life. So basically, Jesus is saying, you've got to let go of the shrub of yourself. You've got to be willing to actually trust me and let it go, as they sang in the, song, in the movie Frozen. Let it go. Think about the man clinging to the shrub on the side of the cliff. He's unwilling to trust what he can't see because he's got such a tight grip on what he can see. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote in the book Mere Christianity about what God says to us. Give me all of you. I don't want so much of your time, so much of your talents and money, and so much of your work. I want you, all of you. I have not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman. I have come to kill it. No half measures will do. I don't want to only prune a branch here and a branch there. Rather, I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me. The whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants and wishes and dreams. Turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me, and I will make of you a new self in my image. Give me yourself, and in exchange I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. That's the first thing Jesus does. He upends the man's views about his own life. Second thing he does is he upends the man's views about religion. Back to the text, verse 18. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, let's get into the story again, right? Why do you think Jesus would, would give such a strong reaction to a guy who is being humble and seems so sincere in his approach? I mean, the guy's on his knees and calling him good teacher. And, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. Now, contrary to what some people have interpreted about this verse, that somehow Jesus is saying he isn't good or he isn't God. That's not it at all. He's probing to see if the man knows who it is he's before on his knees. Does he really understand what kind of teacher he's come to? Does he really understand what goodness is all about? And so he's pushing in on the man's view of goodness, and he's really pushing in on the man's view of how you get to God, what religion is. He wants to upend his view of religion. So he asks the man, have you kept the commandments? And then he rattles off several of them. Incidentally, these are all the horizontal ones. They're not all of them, but they're several of the horizontal commandments, right? That have to do with people and relationships. 
He doesn't give him any of these vertical commandments at this point that have to do with God. Just just the horizontal. Verse 21, the guy says, all these I have kept from my youth. In other words, yep, I've done it. I got this thing covered. I'm a good guy. How do I know this? Because my life shows it. The man believes himself to be a good person. He's a rule follower. Therefore, in his mind, the good things that have happened have come because God's happy with him. He's worthy of inheriting eternal life. He's confident in his own moral character and he's confident in his own ability to get to heaven. That somehow he will earn it. You don't earn an inheritance, by the way. You receive an inheritance. But he wants to add, what must I do to gain this inheritance? Now here, friends, the essence of all religion outside of Christianity is about doing. Doing religious things. Doing moral things. Be good. Be nice. Behave. God will let you in because of what you've done. Because, you know, basically most people believe, yep, my good deeds are going to outweigh the bad, and therefore I merit, and I get in, and St. Peter will be there to give me a big hug. Right? That's not biblical, actually. Christianity says you may be pretty good, but relative to God, you're not good at all. You fall far short of the standard of goodness And that's what Jesus is probing. You fall far short of the standard of goodness because the standard of goodness is God, not the people around you. There's a story about a little boy who had a lamb. Right? He loved it. He lived on this farm. He had raised it from day one, and he bottle-fed it. I mean, this little lamb gave Mary's little lamb a run for her money because the fleece was just beautiful, like shiny white. And he just like showed this lamb to everybody. Look at how beautiful this little lamb is. Well, one day there was a big snowstorm and it went into the night. And as so often happens, you know, the next day dawns bright and blue and beautiful. And, and there's just these powdery snow drifts all around. It's gorgeous. He decides to take his little lamb out to play with him. And they're out in the snow and he's looking at his little lamb and it's just blazingly bright out. And he realizes something's wrong with my lamb because like, he looks dingy and gray. What happened? Nothing. The lamb was exactly the same, but compared to the blazing white brightness of that sun-soaked snow, Her coat was dingy and gray. And so it is with us in comparison to God. You might be better than your wife or your husband or whomever you tend to want to compare yourself to, your brother or your sister, the guy down the street. But in comparison to God, we all fall far short. No one is righteous, Romans 3 tells us. No, not one. Because of this, the only response that's logical and the only response really that God is looking for is for us to recognize that and to hit our knees and to cry out for mercy, to call on God for forgiveness, for the forgiveness that we truly need. See, the man's problem was not that he didn't do some good things. The man's problem was that he was unwilling to admit he was a sinner and that his good deeds were not the religion God was looking for. God was looking for a surrender and an exchange. 
an exchange of his life for the life of Jesus Christ so that he might receive Christ standing before God. Y'all, when I get there, like if anybody asks me why I should get in, my answer is like on my own, I shouldn't get in. But I stand here in Christ's righteousness. And because of that, see, I don't think the question's even going to be asked because I've surrendered to Christ's righteousness. And I can rest in his standing before God. I don't have to achieve or earn or work. Doesn't mean I don't do things for God. It's just that that flows out of what I have received rather than being that which I'm trying to achieve. And so I hope and pray it is with you. So Jesus upends this man's views about religion, about himself and about religion, and now he's going to upend the man's views about God and money. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, you know, that the man thought he'd kept the commands, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now this is where we go from the theological to the practical, and this is where most people want to check out. So don't check out, okay? Because, because Jesus isn't interested in just having a mind exercise. He's interested in this penetrating our hearts and penetrating our lives so that it has an effect. So, so this next part is maybe the most important part. That's my, hey, wake up, this is your commercial break. Stay tuned. Because the enemy would love to steal this part away. Now, Jesus doesn't argue with the man. It's, it's interesting. He just goes to the heart of the matter. He's pushing in, pushing in, pushing in. He's going around the defenses and he's coming in underneath things. Mark 10.21 says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And we talked about when Jesus sees you last week. Like, he looks at him and he loves him. He sees everything about him. He sees through the mirage. He sees through the mask. And incidentally, he sees that in you too. He sees through your mask. And those carefully, carefully mapped out ways of life that we put up to prove to others and to ourselves and to God that we're really okay. He sees you and he loves you. And he loved the man enough to tell him the truth. We have this false notion in our culture that love means accepting everything that's going on. That is not love. That's codependency. Love will speak the truth, not to tear down, but to build up, to set free, to save, to bring about life. And so Jesus is speaking. He says, look, if you want eternal life, you need to give everything away. He's not making a new law. He's doing an intervention at this point. He's breaking through to what the real issue is in his heart. Now, I just got to put a little insert here. This is the only place in the Bible where we hear, give everything away. So this is not a new law. Jesus didn't tell this to everybody. You go to the next chapter to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a rich man and gives half away. Jesus is thrilled with it. He says, salvation has come to your house today. Last week we saw when we were looking at worry and how to get free from your worry about money, Jesus never even said, sell everything. He just said, give your stuff away. So this is not a prescription across the board, a mandate that Christians must be poor. That's not what's happening here. Jesus is probing into this guy's heart. He's showing him the shrub that he thinks is going to save him, and it's his money. The, 
The man is ultimately what the Bible calls an idolater, which is not language you hear, probably, you know, at the, at the water cooler or around the coffee pot at your office. His problem is not that he's kept some of the commandments. His problem is that he hasn't kept the first and the second commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any idols. That's his real issue. That's all of our real issues, by the way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That's the issue that all of our other stuff flows out of. And that's this man's issue here. This man's lifestyle, and let's face it, I mean, money gives you power. Money gives you control. Money opens doors. And that's not a bad thing, by the way. But his lifestyle had become a a kind of God, a counterfeit God, his first love, his true love, what he really was most about. In a very real sense, money was his God. And this is where we've got to open our ears and go, oh my goodness, because we qualify in the category of many rich young men and rich young ruler, uh, uh, women or older men and women. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other, you can't serve God in money. So he knows the real issue. You're not willing to actually trust and let go. So he says, give it all away and come follow me. Here's a solution to idolatry. This is, this is what you came for. Because if this is the issue of your heart and my heart and our heart and the people in your family's hearts, if the issue is idolatry, Jesus gives us the solution. You have to forsake the idol, turn away from it. In this case, he says, give it all away to this man. Let go of the shrub. Surrender and turn to Jesus. Let go of what you're clinging to. But haven't I done that? Well, let's do a little diagnosis. It's important to realize that anything in your life can become an idol. An idol is not a little stone statue. An idol is usually a very good thing that becomes an ultimate thing from which you find meaning, significance, security, 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 significance, importance, ultimate satisfaction. That's what idols are. And those things can be our jobs, our kids, our money, our lifestyle, your body image, like the way you look, your perfect home or your perfect family or your perfect marriage, an early retirement, some skill or dream that you have, what people think about you, power, fame, and yes, money. You see, none of those are necessarily bad things. They're usually good things. They just become ultimate things, and they take over God's place in our lives. Now, how do you know if something has become an idol? Here's your own self-diagnosis. Well, you look at the man's response, and you think about your own response. If you think about losing that thing that might even be surfacing right now, and you think about letting go of that and losing that to Christ, do you have the kind of response that the man has? He went away sad. He became disheartened. Like, if I lost that, my life might be over. I don't know if I could live without her or him or it or that. That's how you know that something's going on in your heart that needs some spiritual surgery. Let me give an example because I want to keep making this practical today. Uh, A few years back, I was working uh, out at Camp St. Christopher. I was um, 
chaplain at a retreat. And a woman came up to me in the prayer line and had some prayer needs. And she said, I'm feeling far away from God. I don't know what's going on and just feel distant. And this relationship I had with him once just seems kind of soured and, and I don't know what it is. And, you know, I'm probing and asking it. And the Lord spoke into my heart and said, ask her about her children. And she began to tell me, I asked her, and she began to describe she was a single mom, she'd had a, a bad husband and a bad breakup, and she was working her tail off. And her focus was that those kids would not be ruined by that man, and that they would have a good life, and they'd have all the opportunities, and she was living for these kids. A good thing that had become an ultimate thing. And the Lord spoke to my heart and said to her, tell her that they are idols, and she needs to turn them over to me. And I was like, you've got to be kidding, Jesus. Is anybody else up there? <laughs> but I've learned that obedience is where our life of faith lives out. And so I said, very like swallowing my tongue, trying to be humble. I think the Lord is saying to me that your kids might be an idol and that he wants you to hand them over to him. Y'all, you would have thought that I hit that lady with a bat. She almost jumped backwards and she went away sad. And I was just crushed. I was like, I did the wrong thing. I didn't hear you, Lord. The codependent in me jumped up, right? And about a year later, this woman approaches me. I'm still out at the camp. So I see like, you know, thousands of people all the time. And she says, do you remember me? And I was like, I'm sorry, I don't. You look familiar, but help me out. She said, I came to you for prayer at that retreat. And I said, oh my gosh, like she looked totally different. She was glowing. She said, I went and I prayed about it. I was furious with you. And then I was furious with God. And he just wouldn't let up. And it took me weeks. But then one night I finally put my kids in his hands, realizing he would be a better parent than I was, that I only have them for a short period of time. She said, I am so free. And she said, you know what I found out? I'm a much better parent now than I was back then because now I'm not parenting from fear and control. Jesus and I walked together down this road. Y'all, she was free. It was beautiful. So let's think about the solution for our idolatries for a moment. What's the path to freedom? You've got to let go of it. You surrender it. We let go by trusting God and let go of the shrub, whatever that thing is, whatever that, that issue is, and you begin to recognize that your true, your true treasure is in heaven. The true treasure is in heaven. We've got to see Jesus is the treasure of this life. And that anything we give up, anything we let go of for Him will never be left in emptiness because we will have an eternal re return. And often He gives us things back in this life. Like this woman, she didn't lose her kids, she just got them back in a new way, a Jesus way so that she wasn't parenting alone anymore. Treasure in heaven. Now think about this. Even if you lost everything, now let's just play this out, like to the thing nobody really wants, but even if you lost everything in this life, 
your health, your finances, your friends, your family, and you still have Jesus, you win. Now that's a heart that's free from idols. And when you begin to get in that place, seeing him as your treasure in heaven, here's what happens, friends. You begin to see that you're his treasure on earth. That as he looks at you, he sees you and he's amazed and he's delighted and he finds you lovely. He calls you child. His heart is toward you. You are the pearl of great price. You are the treasure hidden in the field that he's come to seek after. You are the one who ravishes his heart and causes him to have great joy. In fact, the Scripture says, for the joy set before him, he endured a cross, scorning its shame. You, you are the joy of Jesus that he endured the cross for. Let's pray. Well, Lord, it's deep today and it's meaty. And so we need your help. We do rebuke every condemning voice that would try to steal away the freedom that you offer. And we pray, Lord, you would show us those things that become idols in our lives. Particularly money, Lord, but all the other things as well. Would you set us free? Would you make us new? Would you let salvation take deep root within each one of us? that you would be glorified and we would marvel over you forever. We pray in your name. Amen.